From Public Radio International, I'm Madeline Brand, and this is America Abroad, the show that brings global issues home. There is no country in the world that thinks better of the United States than the Philippines. According to a Pew Research poll, 92 percent of Filipinos say they have a favorable view of the U.S., That's even more than Americans themselves. The United States and the Philippines have had mutual, strategic, and economic interests for more than a century. The U.S. has access to military bases there, and the Philippines is seen as a key buffer to China's regional ambitions. But while the militaries are well aligned, there is now a widening political gap. And that began when President Rodrigo Duterte took office in June last year. Immediately, he instituted a nationwide crackdown on drugs. He unleashed police forces to kill anyone suspected of being involved in drugs, dealers and users alike. It's going to be a bloody fight. I am not apologizing for it. I assume full legal responsibility for it. At one point, he even compared himself to Adolf Hitler in his quest to purge his country. Hitler massacred three million Jews. Now, there is three million drug addicts. I'd be happy to slaughter them. Duterte later apologized for that comment. Still, it's estimated that more than 7,000 people have been killed by the police since his campaign began. So no trial, no jury, no chance to plead your case. If the police suspect you're involved in the drug trade, they are authorized to shoot. Rather than take a chance, some one million Filipinos have voluntarily turned themselves in. When the Obama administration condemned this policy, Duterte's response shocked Washington. Mr. Obama, you can go to hell. Earlier, when Duterte flung insults at Obama, the president canceled a meeting with him, but still maintained diplomatic ties. Within the Philippines, Duterte actually enjoys widespread popularity, with an approval rating around 80 percent. And while his brash talk and harsh actions may seem irrational abroad, they strike a chord at home. Duterte's supporters see him as a strong, straight-talking leader who can reduce crime and make cities safer and cleaner. Recent polls found that more than half the country is very satisfied with Duterte's war on drugs. On today's program, we'll explore the deep and complex history between the United States and the Philippines. And we'll ask, how should the United States balance its strategic interest in Asia and in the Philippines in light of the human rights abuses in that country? We begin this hour in Manila, the capital of the Philippines, and the epicenter of Duterte's war on drugs. Reporter Michael Sullivan sends us this story about what the crackdown has meant for Filipinos and their president. The police say Aristotle Garcia died like thousands of others in the war on drugs, killed in a shootout after he tried to sell an undercover cop drugs, and the deal went bad. His sister, Karen Rana, doesn't believe it. No, he's a user. He didn't deal a little on the side to pay for his own drugs? No. And nowadays, with this kind of situation happening everywhere, especially here in Manila, he will not do that because he's already afraid to be caught and killed. She shows me the police report and a photo of the crime scene, a blood-stained Aristotle lying in the street, a 38 in one hand, a wad of cash in the other. The police report says... Aristotle fired at the cop who fired back, in self-defense, six shots to Aristotle's chest. And if he is resisting arrest, 
if you shot him once, he'll get weak. And you need, don't need to shot him six, five times another. Was your brother left-handed? No, he's a right-handed person. Then that gun's in the wrong hand. Yes, absolutely. What you're telling me here is that your brother was executed by the police. Yes, he was executed. They want to get my brother. Aristotle's mother, Sylvia, she admits crime is down in her neighborhood because of the war on drugs. She's not against the idea, but not like this, she says. Stop that extrajudicial killing, because not all that was killed are guilty. But she's in the minority. Like this is just fine for many. Duterte, more popular now than he was when he was elected more than a year ago. Just a few blocks from the Garcia's home, there's a bunch of bars popular with middle and upper middle class students from nearby De La Salle University. In them, you'll find many Duterte supporters who aren't bothered by the extrajudicial killings at all. Number one, I don't even consider it extrajudicial killings. Maybe it's a moral killing in a way, but not extrajudicial killing. It's like a pest in your house. If you see a cockroach, what would you do? Definitely you would kill it over. For me, if you're a drug user, if you're a drug pusher, or if you're a drug lord, it's like you are a sick in the society. You need to die or you need to, you need to be eradicated from the world. Daniel Bernardo is a 31-year-old PhD student who gives Duterte an A- minus for his first 12 months in office. I think he's doing very good. He's like a father for every Filipino. He's a game changer. He's not a traditional politician. So Duterte is someone that is so different. Chito Gascon, who heads the Philippines Commission on Human Rights, agrees Duterte is different, but not in a good way, he says. The playbook that is being pursued now was the playbook that he mastered and perfected while he was mayor. As mayor of Davao City on the southern island of Mindanao, that before Duterte was a largely lawless place on a largely lawless island, plagued by both a communist insurgency and Muslim separatists. We cannot just move around the city at night. I was a student in one of the universities here. The instruction was after 5 o'clock, you better stay in your houses. Really, the wild, wild west. Edita Kadoaya, a local journalist in Davao City. After his election in 1989, the promise was, let's fix this city and get things done. And he did. This is People's Park in the center of Davao City, where people bring their families to stroll in the park at night without fear. In a country where the law is often flouted with glee, Davao City has lots of rules rigidly enforced. An anti-littering ordinance, a 10 p.m. curfew for minors, and there's no smoking in public places, Duterte once forced a South Korean tourist to eat his cigarette after he lit up on the street in front of the mayor. Live a healthy life. Make Davao City a smoke-free city. Davao City also boasts the Philippines' first 911 emergency response center. 911 emergency. And a sophisticated IBM-designed surveillance operation, technicians monitoring hundreds of cameras around the city. And all of it, says Supervisor Emmanuel Haldon, is Duterte's vision. He always has this in mind that you cannot guarantee development if your safety and security is not guaranteed to all citizens. So that is a prerequisite prior to really getting real development. And despite his potty mouth 
and macho swagger. Some in Davao City say a lot of that bluster is just an act. His heart is bigger than his mouth. He's not perfect, but he's doing his best for the women and children. A women's development code, a center for victims of domestic violence, a children's welfare code, all municipal firsts in the Philippines, says Jeanette Ampog. She runs Talikala, a local NGO that helps sex workers and trafficking victims. And about those sex workers, when he was mayor, Duterte unofficially decriminalized prostitution in Davao City, despite a nationwide ban. Because the president believes that these women are human beings and deserve to be protected, and they're only doing this to earn something for themselves and for their family. But critics say Duterte's success in turning around a city now run by his daughter, Sarah, came at a huge cost, hundreds of extrajudicial killings, maybe more during his time as mayor, attributed to what became known as the Davao Death Squad. There's no doubt in my mind that Mayor Rodrigo Duterte is responsible for these killings. That's Carlos Conde, a researcher with Human Rights Watch, which produced an exhaustive report on the killings in Davao City nearly a decade ago. During last year's election campaign, Duterte didn't run from the allegations. He embraced them. In public, you know, he said that he, he is the death squad, that he's behind his killings. And it's not true that there are only uh, hundreds of killings. The figure could be 1,700 over the years. Based on his public statements in campaign speeches, even interviews with the press, even in his own radio program, TV program, he admits as much. And that's pretty much how he won last year's election, by telling voters he could do for the country what he did in Davao City. And it worked. And his distrust of the U.S., according to many in Davao City, that came from his time as mayor, too. After an American staying there accidentally set off a bomb in his hotel room and was taken to a hospital by police, then was snatched from that hospital, allegedly by U.S. agents, before he could be questioned. Duterte was furious, says this former high-ranking Army intelligence officer who requests anonymity. That is the beginning why Mayor Duterte, now the president, hate Americans. <laughs> That's the very reason. Seraphine Ledesma Jr., who publishes the Mindanao Journal, agrees. The sheer arrogance of the FBI agents to just barge in Davao City and pulled out a very important person who should have been undergoing interrogation by Davao City authorities. It was a rough shared treatment he got from the embassy. That case may have been the most personal reason for Duterte's distrust of the U.S. Another the Americans' history in the Philippines. He's not against the American people, but it's more of the policy. The injustice done to the Moros. Because his mother has her roots from the Muslim settlers of Mindanao. Injustice, says Davao City journalist Adita Kadawaya, that occurred during the U.S. occupation of the Philippines that began in 1898 and ended in 1946. In particular, the massacre of hundreds of Moro Muslims, including women and children, on the island of Holo in 1906. When he recalls that incident, he usually rants. He also chafes at what he sees as American paternalism and has made a public show of pursuing an independent foreign policy, not overly reliant on the U.S., a longtime treaty ally, an ally he doesn't really trust to come to the Philippines' aid to deter China's territorial expansion in the South China Sea an ally whose criticism of his war on drugs, under President Obama at least, made Duterte combust. 
as I found out when I asked him at a news conference before the U.S. election if he cared about that criticism from the U.S. and others. No, not at all. I have a problem here. So I will solve it with my limited resources and the way I want it. I am not worried about the international community because I am not the president of the international countries. I am the president of the Republic of the Philippines and I must solve decisively this problem. No regrets about the war on drugs, I asked? No, he said, none at all. And then he finished with a flourish. At the end of the day, it is really your love for your country. Do not f my country. Do not f with our children. Duterte has toned down his anti-U.S. rhetoric in the past few months, especially after Donald Trump became president. He famously swore at President Obama for Washington's criticism of the war on drugs, but he's had kinder words for Trump, who recently complimented Duterte on the, quote, great job he was doing with that war, and invited Duterte to the White House for a visit. Duterte has also acknowledged the U.S. military's help in ending the siege of Marawi City by Islamic State militants on the island of Mindanao. But he has vowed to continue his war on drugs his way until it's over. But what happens then, asks Chito Casson of the Philippines Commission on Human Rights. Once the criminals are gone, will the killing stop? I don't think so. Once you've let the beast out of the cage, how are you going to bring it back? Jose Manuel Diocno is dean of the De La Salle University Law School. He shares Gascon's fears and worries about a possible return to the martial law of the former dictator, Ferdinand Marcos. It's really a contradiction in terms. He says it's a war on drugs, but in my view, it's really a war against the poor. He says it's a war on drugs, but he's not in any way attacking the syndicates, the organizations that are responsible for bringing in all of these drugs. And my biggest fear, which appears to be happening, is that it's really an attempt to demean the legal system to the point where only an authoritarian form of government will be capable of maintaining order. For America Abroad, I'm Michael Sullivan in Manila. Up next, a deeper look into the complexities of present-day Filipino society. We will switch back and forth between Filipino and English, throw in some Spanish words. You know, there is no such thing as a pure Filipino. We are a mix. That's just ahead, but if you're looking for more about this program, including photos from our reporters in Manila, you can find our program page at PRI.org. From PRI, this is America Abroad. I'm Madeline Brand. At times, Filipinos saw the United States as occupiers and oppressors, other times as allies and liberators. In order to understand these dynamics and the role of the United States, we need to go back in time. Here's NYU historian Justin Jackson. There's this long history of a colonial relationship, for the most part, between the U.S. and the Philippines anyways, pretty peaceful relationship for colonial power and a colonial people. That history of colonialism begins very violently. It began when the U.S. took the Philippines from Spain as a consequence of the Spanish-American War. And so it's kind of a historical accident in a way that the United States even finds itself in the Philippines. They do it as a function of fighting the Spanish Navy in the Pacific. 
At the time, the Philippines had been rebelling against 300 years of Spanish colonial rule. So when American troops defeated the Spanish, the Filipinos thought the U.S. was saving them from colonialism and that they'd finally become independent. They think the United States is going to support their independence. They have no idea that, in fact, this is the moment at which America is becoming a world power for the first time. Keeping control of the Philippines would make it easier for the United States to trade with China. The Philippines also had valuable commodities like tobacco and sugar. And it could be a convenient military base. When the Americans first arrived, the indigenous people spoke dozens of different languages. They had different cultures and no unifying national identity. But there was a nascent Filipino nationalist movement led by Emilio Aguinaldo. He declared Philippine independence in 1898, at the end of the Spanish-American War. And within months, the Philippine-American War began. 4,000 Americans die. So compared to most American wars, that's not a large number of casualties. On the Philippine side, estimates vary. Maybe twenty to 40,000 Filipino troops killed and anywhere between 200 and 5 or 6 or 700,000 civilians die mostly of disease. It's an extraordinarily destructive war, continues for 2 years with the US having formally annexed the archipelago as a US territory and Aguinaldo and the nationalists resisting until they're defeated. The war officially ended a few years later, but fighting continued in the southern islands of Mindanao and Sulu for another decade. Intermittent warfare, which we call the Moro Wars. These peoples were called by the Spanish and the Americans the Moros, after the Moors of Spain. The Filipino Moros were Muslim. Today, the Moro Wars are remembered in the Philippines as an atrocity of American imperialism. And this is precisely what Duterte has referred to in showing the images of really grisly massacres, like the massacre at Bud Dahao. Bud Dahao is an inactive volcano in the Sulu archipelago. Hundreds of Moro people fled to the mouth of the volcano, but the American military went after them. Chases them up the mountain and just shoots artillery into this refuge for these civilians and kills 300, 400, 500, it's really not known, uh, men, women, and children. By comparison, the rest of the Philippines, the mostly Christian islands, were much easier to govern. After declaring the Philippines a territory, the Americans began to reshape the country. The United States, they see their job not as ruling a colonial people in perpetuity, like, say, the British in India. They see their job as building a nation, finding a way to unify the Philippines into a national people that is at some point capable of governing itself. The U.S. established a public school system where they taught English as a common national language. The Americans worked with the Filipinos to develop railroads, modern architecture, health care. They outlawed slavery and all but extinguished the practice of headhunting, and foreign trade increased dramatically. Over the years, the U.S. gradually gave the Philippines more autonomy and finally promised to grant independence. But then... World War II broke out. A Japanese task force was also heading for Oahu. Mission, sneak attack. Within hours of the Japanese bombing Pearl Harbor, they're invading the Philippines. And the American forces there with the Filipino military collapses very quickly. Leading the Philippine army was the famed American general Douglas MacArthur. He is forced to leave. 
MacArthur says, I will be back. I will come back. Within a few months, the U.S.-Philippine alliance surrendered. The Japanese forcibly marched 60,000 American and Filipino prisoners of war out of the Bataan Peninsula. Hundreds of Americans and thousands of Filipinos died during what became known as the Bataan Death March. It was the start of two years of cruel Japanese occupation. Truly horrific conditions, slave labor, essentially. Whole massacres of villages. The Filipino people had just nearly solidified their independence for the first time since the 1500s. And now they found themselves under the boot of another colonial power. And so they rebelled. So the whole society is kind of mobilized in resistance to the Japanese occupation. But part of that are communist guerrillas. These communist guerrillas formed the base of what would eventually become a decades-long communist insurgency in the Philippines. But during World War II, they were seen as heroes. And their guerrilla tactics, along with American aerial attacks, turned the war around in the Philippines. Douglas MacArthur invades in 1944. He does return, as promised. People of the Philippines, I have returned. Famously, you know, walks onto the beach with, I think, a cane or something like that. Our forces stand again on Philippine soil, soil consecrated in the blood of our two people. Filipinos see it as a moment of national identity and national independence, where the Americans helped the Filipinos become free from the Japanese. And then, of course, in 1946, the Philippines gains its official independence from the United States. After 48 years of American sovereignty, the people of the Philippines assumed the status of an independent nation. The Republic of the Philippines modeled its government on that of the United States, with executive and judicial branches, a bicameral legislature, and open democratic elections. But politics in the Philippines works differently than in the U.S. There's never really a cohesive national ruling class in the Philippines. There's just decentralized points of political power that function on patronage. In other words, local landed elites would do favors for their powerful friends and relatives. Once they consolidated their power locally, they would go national. Corruption became endemic. And the most infamous symbol of Philippine corruption was Ferdinand Marcos, who stole billions of dollars from the Treasury. He was first elected president in 1965. And from the beginning, he had a warm relationship with the United States. The Philippines was a close American ally against communist dictatorships in Asia. And Marcos sent Filipino soldiers to fight alongside American troops in Vietnam. Marcos was re-elected in 1969, and it was around that time that a large communist insurgency emerged. The student movements by the late 60s are getting very militant. There are major street protests. By 1972, Marcos is dealing with bombings, uh, some street fighting, and, and declares martial law. Marcos suspended habeas corpus, a legal safeguard against warrantless arrests, and he rewrote the Constitution to give himself more power as president. By that point, student leaders, uh, lawyers, trade unionists, people who are in the opposition to the dictatorship start to get rounded up. And there are extrajudicial killings. There are people who are imprisoned. There are people who disappear. It's a terrible period in Philippine history. But Marcos had full American support, including military aid. The Philippine president was anti-communist, and the U.S. military bases in the Philippines were strategically essential during the Vietnam War and remained important assets after that. 
Marcos was also considered a friend and ally of the United States and was later a personal friend of President Ronald Reagan. Here's Michael Armacost, U.S. ambassador to the Philippines from 1982 to 1984. There was a reluctance to make democratization the focus of our policy toward a regime that was considered a tried and true ally of the U.S. in the broader East-West struggle. But that sentiment was far from universal. I told Armacost that the Philippines was going to hell. Morton Abramowitz is the former head of the State Department's Bureau of Intelligence and Research. The DeMarcus government was leading it to hell that our major purpose in the Philippines over the next year was to expedite his departure as best we could. During the Marcos presidency, more than 3,200 people were killed. Tens of thousands were tortured and imprisoned. By the mid-'80s, the country's economy had weakened, and the Marcos regime was losing popular support. Then in 1986, amid massive public protests, Top Filipino military leaders publicly withdrew their support for Marcos. Anti-American sentiment was spreading, and there was a fear that U.S. bases in the Philippines would be in jeopardy. Now, President Reagan came to support a more democratic form of government for the Philippines. Reagan told Marcos it was time to leave. He allowed him to flee to Hawaii and live in exile. Then the Philippines reestablished democracy and elected a new president. But the end of the 20-year Marcos regime did not mean the end to human rights abuses in the Philippines. Security forces continued to execute suspected communist insurgents. Journalists were sometimes killed, as were labor union leaders. And in 1988, Rodrigo Duterte became the mayor of Davao, where he promised to clean up the city by any means necessary. Much later, the Philippine government allowed an international investigation. The UN sent Philip Alston. The Davao situation, he says, was among the worst he's ever seen. There were problems with street children who range in ages from really very young, maybe eight or nine or 10, up through as old as 20. These children had been orphaned or thrown out of their homes, lived in gangs, uh, did things that were antisocial. They have no means of support. They have to engage in either drug dealing or prostitution or theft in order to survive. And the easiest way to address that problem was to kill them. Someone says, let's just get rid of this problem, eliminate them. And that might be done by the police themselves directly, or it might be done by groups that operate with the tacit acceptance by the police who don't respond to the killings that take place. This wasn't the first time Alston had reported on the executions of children. He'd seen it before in places like Guatemala. But he says there were two things he saw in Davao that set it apart, things that shocked him. First, the executions were systematic. The children themselves or their families, if they had them, would be warned in advance, if your kid doesn't stop doing this, he or she will no longer be with us. And sure enough, not so long after that warning had come, the child was killed. And second, Alston says it all happened in the open. There was no attempt to conceal the identity of the killer. And that was a very clear indication that the killers were not worried about prosecution or investigation, which made it pretty clear that the authorities were involved in the 
whole exercise. But then a strange thing happened. Alston says the president at the time, Gloria Macapagal Arroyo, asked him what could be done to stop the killings. Alston told her to simply order the security forces to stop. She did, and it worked. Once the order came from above, Alston said extrajudicial killings dropped dramatically. The Philippines is, in my view, a an odd combination of a country that has struggled valiantly, actually, for democracy and the rule of law, but at the same time has long had a very powerful undercurrent of lawlessness. So the Philippines has this very bright side and the dark underside, which doesn't seem to go away. So as we've heard over the past century, the relationship between the Philippines and the United States has vacillated. There is a huge American influence in Filipino culture, but there's also a Spanish influence, a holdover from its colonial past. And you can see that, says Filipino poet Luis Francia, in the country's religion. The Philippines is probably 85% Catholic, and it's the only predominantly Roman Catholic nation in Asia. Uh, If you look at most Filipino names, they're really Latino names. And that's because of a royal decree somewhere in the mid-19th century that all Indios, as we were referred to then, had to have Spanish names when we were baptized. So considering all of these influences, which one would you say is the most dominant when it comes to modern Filipino identity? Is it the Spanish influence? Is it the American influence? Is it the indigenous influence, the Asian influence? I would say it's a mixture of all three. I mean, if you look at Filipino, there are maybe 30 percent words of Spanish origin And it also has a lot of words derived from English. You know, there is no such thing as a pure Filipino. We are a mix. The only pure Filipinos would be those, I guess, in the hinterlands, the different tribal minorities. How do regular Filipinos, how do they view the United States? Actually, most Filipinos, they may say something critical about the States, but they do have a warm view of Americans as individuals. I mean, we're used to the colonial game. I mean, we've been occupied, colonized, invaded for over 400 years. So we have a certain je ne sais quoi attitude towards what we might call non-Filipino elements, rather than resisting, we tend to incorporate them. So I think it's important to keep that in mind. You will notice that if we're going to talk about the current Philippine government, there's a kind of schizophrenic attitude towards the U.S. government. We can understand it if we go back to this feeling of differentiating between government policy and individuals. Well, let's talk about the current president, Duterte. And we must, okay. (laughs) Why do you think he is so popular, given the fact that here in the United States, we see his extrajudicial killings and other human rights abuses? We look at that with horror. Um, I'm not sure Trump looks at those with horror, but yes. And I think it all goes back to the same reason that made Trump popular at the outset was this populist talk that Duterte has, where he emphasizes 
government isn't working, I will solve your problems, I may be tough and I will do certain things that you may not approve of, but I will solve your problems. So he's very astute. And so given the fact that there's a huge income inequality and given the fact that there's still two insurgencies and uh, there's a lot of crime, he somehow tapped into that popular resentment. What's happening, you'll have people using this as an opportunity to settle scores or you know, vigilantism where some citizens will take it into their heads. Well, there's this person, he's thought of as a drug pusher, let's just kill him. Forget the judicial system. Because for them, for most people in the Philippines, the judicial system doesn't really work. The wheels of justice, they don't turn slowly, they don't turn at all. And so the feeling is, okay, well, we've got to solve this. Let's close our eyes and hope that Duterte and his minions are able to solve the problem of crime. So if, I, if the wheels of justice don't turn at all, how can the Philippines be a democracy? Well, it stumbles, it trips, but it still moves forward because there are in the provinces and in the towns, you will have pretty good, what we call barangays, the smallest political unit in the country. And they can be very effective. And so a lot of disputes will be settled out of court. And some of the big cases do get resolved. But for the person on the street with no money, without even being found guilty, a person can spend time in the prison system. So it's not a vigorous democracy that we would like it to be. But there are still democratic institutions that do function in spite of all the failings that we have. Speaking to us via Skype. That's Luis Francia, author of the book A History of the Philippines from Indios Bravos to Filipinos. He writes an online column for Manila's Philippine Daily Inquirer, the country's largest English language newspaper. Coming up, the Philippines is seen as a key buffer to China's regional ambitions. We're trying to keep the Philippines in the American orbit rather than the Chinese orbit. But there's a big cost with that. You're listening to America Abroad. Want to hear more of this episode or other episodes? You can subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. From PRI, it's America Abroad. I'm Madeline Brand. For decades, there's been an Islamic insurgency in the Philippines on the island of Mindanao. The Muslims there, known as Moros, want independence. And now some of them have pledged allegiance to the Islamic State. This summer, they attacked and took over the city of Marawi in Mindanao. Duterte sent in the military and declared martial law. Adam Ramsey reports from Manila on how the situation has unfolded and how it's affecting Filipino relations with both the United States and China. It's about 1 a.m. and I'm standing with Rafi Lerma down a dark alley outside the house of a man called Marvin. A wall has been ripped out of his dilapidated home. It's to make room for his casket. You see, Marvin was gunned down two days before, just another victim of the war on drugs. Rafi's feeling contemplative, 
As a photojournalist, he's covered both the brutal war on drugs in Greater Manila and the ISIS-inspired siege ongoing in the southern Philippine city of Marawi. Duterte's anti-terror offensive may have shifted the spotlight from his controversial drug war, but for Rafi, there will always be one important difference. Marawi, the people are united against the fight of uh, terrorism. But here, in the drug war, it really divides the people. But when it comes to divisions, it's really the war in Mindanao, that lush, mountainous southern island with its large Muslim population, which has the greater historical roots in division. The relationship amongst Muslims and majority Filipinos is generally dictated by long years of historical antagonism. That's Professor Julkipli Wadi, a former dean and current lecturer at the University of Philippines Institute of Islamic Studies. We are now more than 40 years. The government and the Moro France have been hammering out so-called peace agreements in order to effect a broader autonomy amongst Muslims in the in southern Philippines. Wadi explains that factions of the Muslim population in the Philippines, often referred to as Moro, have for decades waged a separatist insurgency aimed at self-rule under several banners. From the Moro National Liberation Front to the Moro Islamic Liberation Front, splinters and offshoots have multiplied with almost every passing year. In 2014, under the Aquino administration, a breakthrough peace deal was signed, complete with promises of self-governance. But it stalled in Congress under endless reviews as to its constitutionality. Ironically, every time a peace agreement is signed, it would trigger the rise of new radical groups to oppose precisely the deal forged between the Philippine government and Moro rebels. Then, on May the 23rd, conflict erupted in Marawi, a city of some 200,000, after a botched attempt to snatch Isnilon Hapilon, the so-called emir of ISIS in Southeast Asia and leader of group Abu Sayyaf, which led more radical splinter groups to violently confront the Philippines' military. Martial law was immediately declared for the entirety of Mindanao. In the months since, government forces have been unable to dislodge a stubborn group of ISIS-affiliated militants from the city, and martial law was recently extended to the end of the year. Air bombardments and street-to-street -street fighting between sniper alleys has been slow and deadly. As of July 19th, some 565 people have been killed, including 421 militants, 99 government troops and 45 civilians. Meanwhile, tens of thousands have fled, while much of the city centre is left in ruins. When I went to Marawi, I was asked by the media, why are you here? I'm here because my soldiers are here and I came here to die also. That's the president, Rodrigo Duterte, during his recent State of the Nation address, appealing to his strong man image by explaining the need to remain fearless in the face of battle. Yet according to Wadi, Duterte could and should have seen this particular battle coming, except his mind was seemingly elsewhere. I think these past several months, the Duterte government was so focused on the war on drugs, you forgot, I would say. Equally critical issue like the looming radicalism that had been felt in Mindanao these past several months. According to Richard Haydarian, a political analyst and author of the forthcoming book Duterte's Rise, both the drug and moral conflicts take on a wholly different light when you approach them as those who have invested most in the sprawling Southeast Asian nation, China and the US. Haydarian says that while much was made when the armed forces of the Philippines sought out U.S. help in tackling the ISIS-affiliated rebels in Marawi, 
At the same time, he says... The Chinese offered an unprecedented aid package, a $12 million defense aid equipment package. So now suddenly morale is no longer just a battle against ISIS, but increasing the Mindanao crisis also morphed into a Sino-American competition for hearts and minds of the Filipino people. Yet while Duterte and the Philippines may currently be hitting what Heydarian calls a strategic sweet spot of maintaining good relations with both China and the U.S., Uncertainty over clashes on drugs and in Marawi means a clash between superpowers can't be ruled out. For America Abroad, I'm Adam Ramsey in Manila, the Philippines. The Philippines has had an up-and-down relationship with China for nearly a decade. That started when China began encroaching in the South China Sea and taking over territory previously controlled or claimed by other countries, including the Philippines. And in 2012, the Chinese seized Scarborough Shoal, which is about 140 nautical miles north of Luzon Island. Murray Hebert is a Southeast Asia expert at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Filipinos considered that a pretty big loss and then took a case to the UN Arbitral Tribunal in The Hague. Tribunal ruled on that, said that China really did not have rights to claim 80% of the South China Sea. Many of the issues that the Philippines raised were ruled in favor of the Philippines. But in many ways, it was a hollow victory. After the ruling, China cut a billion-dollar banana trade program with the Philippines, Chinese tourists were not allowed to visit the Philippines, and China ended its infrastructure and development programs there. Duterte felt that the Aquino government was too hostile, and it resulted in loss of aid, infrastructure help, and that kind of stuff. So a few months after Duterte took office last year, he visited China and made a promise. He would put the ruling in his pocket, meaning he would not flaunt it in the face of the Chinese, and he was going to begin a separation. I announced my separation from the United States, both the military but economics also. And on that trip, so the please, Chinese companies signed $24 billion worth of contracts for construction of infrastructure. But Duterte's ambitions toward China may be stymied by political realities. Antonio Lavinia is the dean of the Ateneo School of Government in Manila. He's a former undersecretary of the Filipino Department of Environment and Natural Resources. He says Duterte actually hasn't followed through on his promise to separate from the United States. Because there's no support for that in the government. There's no support for that in the Department of Foreign Affairs. There's no support for that in the military. And there's no support for that among the citizens of the country. So even though Duterte says things like, I've seen America, and it's lousy. His military officers are saying things like, It has a good relationship as far as the military is concerned. That's Major Ezra Balogti, the chief public information officer of the Eastern Mindanao Command. He says the Filipino military still has a strong relationship with the U.S. military. Some of our troops and officers are still going to the, the United States to undergo training. Murray Hebert says Filipino generals see things more pragmatically. They recognize that if push comes to shove, as we're seeing in Mindanao, the U.S. has things to provide, and China really, they haven't got any interoperability with the military in China. So Duterte has said publicly, you know, my generals tell me we have to keep cooperating with the U.S. They have a lot to offer us, and so we're going to keep cooperating with the U.S. 
For the United States, providing assistance in defeating ISIS in Marawi and continuing joint military exercises accomplishes two goals. First, stopping the spread of ISIS in Southeast Asia. And second, reaffirming U.S. authority in the region. But on Mindanao, some of those affected by the conflict are leery of accepting foreign aid from the United States. Among them, Samira Ali Gutak. She's a former assemblywoman in Mindanao. My issue is really what's the interest of the U.S. in the Marawi. There's an issue of military properties. The fear by civilians is, if it's martial law, would the military take over our lands? After so many years of being taken advantage of, she says, Filipinos have learned to look for the strings attached to any gifts. All this hour, we've been looking into the state of U.S.-Philippine relations, how they're intertwined, how tensions have arisen, especially because of President Rodrigo Duterte's brutal drug war. While some in Congress have spoken out against Duterte's human rights abuses, the Trump administration has been reluctant to criticize. Take this exchange during Secretary of State Rex Tillerson's confirmation hearings back in January when he was questioned by Senator Marco Rubio. Since uh, President Rodrigo Duterte took office last June, the Los Angeles Times reports 6,200 people have been killed in the Philippines by police and vigilantes in alleged drug raids. In your view, is this the right way to conduct an anti-drug campaign? Uh, America and the people of the Philippines have a long-standing friendship And I think it's important that we keep that in perspective in in engaging with the government of the Philippines. That's correct, Mr. Tosin. But my question is about the 6,200 people that have been killed in these alleged drug raids. Secretary of State Rex Tillerson did explain that we're not saying human rights isn't important. Again, Murray Hebert, Southeast Asia policy expert. But we should not put that in front of our economic and strategic interests. Those come first, and then human rights comes after that. At the level of realpolitik, what are we trying to do here? We're trying to keep the Philippines in the American orbit rather than the Chinese orbit. That's Elliot Abrams. I was Assistant Secretary of State for Human Rights back in the Reagan administration. I'm now a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. I would imagine that people in the administration believe they've increased their influence with Duterte and will have a better chance of keeping him from leaping into China's arms because, you know, you can be sure that his human rights violations are not going to be criticized by China. And he could be sure of that. So that's the theoretical gain. But there's a big cost with that. In the long run, it seems to me, Filipinos are going to look back and they will wonder, well, who in those days was saying, stop this? Elliot Abrams notes that the Trump administration has already spoken out against violations in places like Venezuela and Cuba. It's more difficult with allies like the Philippines. Still, he says there are precedents, and he points to Ronald Reagan's change of heart with Ferdinand Marcos. At the very beginning, President Reagan's basic view was we should not be lecturing friendly governments. He came to believe that dictatorships were in the end not stable. In fact, that was the path to the communist revolution as the people of the country became more and more dissatisfied with the dictatorship under which they lived. That evolution took a couple of years for President Reagan, who then had a more and more vigorous human rights policy. Abrams says this is where diplomacy comes in. He says there have been numerous instances when American administrations have remained publicly silent on human rights abuses, but have privately persuaded countries to change using appeals to their own self-interest. We're not saying to people, commit suicide, resign, go to jail. 
we're saying to them, we'd like to have a conversation about this where we can discuss your country's interests and our country's interests. Of course, there are other ways to exert pressure. Just because the White House is warm toward Duterte doesn't mean other Americans can't speak up. You need to make Duterte, frankly, not want to come here because of the demonstrations against him that there would be. The greeting that he would get in Congress, in the press, from the American public, if he came to Washington, it can't just be a Filipino or Filipino-American question. It's got to be uh, members of Congress. It's got to be human rights groups in the United States, church groups in the United States, uniting to say this kind of conduct is unacceptable. And these days, even finding consensus among Filipino-Americans on Duterte can be difficult, and this limits their political influence. I think that Filipino immigrants living here definitely feel like they're caught in the middle. Anthony Ocampo is a second-generation Filipino living in Los Angeles. He's a sociology professor at Cal Poly Pomona. Where I teach, there's a large number of Filipino-American students. And oftentimes I'll ask them, like, how do your parents feel about Duterte? And a number of them have said, oh, you know, my parents are very critical about certain things that he's done, you know, the declaration of martial law, even if it was just part of the Philippines. But then I asked them, oh, do they ever talk about it with the relatives back home? The relatives back home that they see as, you know, well-informed, well-educated people say, you know, the ends justify the means, which is to lower poverty or to create civil order. A more serious problem is that speaking out can be dangerous. So I've seen a number of Filipino-American journalists that have expressed their concerns and have been critical of the Duterte administration. And, you know, because we're living in the age of social media, these people have gotten death threats. They've been threatened with rape. They've been threatened with violence. That's the type of engagement that I think might hinder some people from, from speaking up because obviously those are very scary things to happen. But Ocampo says if Filipino-Americans begin advocating for human rights as a unified bloc, there's a good chance they'd succeed. He says their unique history of being Southeast Asians, colonized first by the Spanish and then by the Americans, connects them to a wide range of groups. These cultural overlaps provide important opportunities for Filipinos to build alliances, political alliances, organizational alliances with so many different groups in the United States that I hope that people start paying attention. The Philippines has had a long struggle to become an independent nation with a functioning democracy. It's not there yet. The United States has, in the past, helped the Philippines move in that direction, and it can do so again if it chooses. This Hour of America Abroad was written and edited by Rob Sachs and produced by Shoshi Shmulevitz, with additional production help from Flan Williams and Alexandra Chavez, Lorraine Eustaris, and Margaret Evans. Audio engineering support was provided by Mario Saavedra at KCRW. You can hear past programs by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes or by visiting our website at pri.org where you can also find extended interviews and exclusive content pertaining to this and other programs. I'm Madeline Brand, and this is America Abroad from Public Radio International. Support for this show was provided by Public Radio International stations and listeners like you. PRI, Public Radio International.